My collaborator today is Jack Durek Danner, a pediatric massage therapist and autism advocate. We cover a lot of ground in our conversation, discussing, among other things, consent, the medical model versus the social model, and representation of a group by that group. Whether working with infants, children, or adults, Jack talks about the importance of decentralizing ourselves, not assuming that everything is about us, so we can get curious about why another person is expressing themselves in a particular way. This curiosity is what helps us expand our idea of what it is to be human, to be inclusive and representative of a full breadth of expressions and different neurotypes. Such curiosity should include ourselves too, as Jack says, because no one, even us, has a fixed self. Jack also addresses some of the commonly held and deeply problematic myths about autism and invites listeners to engage with a plethora of resources, either as autistic individuals looking for community or advocacy support, or as holistic folk looking to uproot and unlearn these myths. So I always start off by asking my guests to speak a bit about their background and what brought them to the work that they're doing, which I often frame in how people move from an experience of I am suffering to there is suffering. So sort of moving into a place of caring for a larger sense of the world than just from a small sense of self. So I uh, do two different but similar jobs. So I'm both a massage therapist and an autism advocate. And in both cases, so with the massage, it was originally I was looking for a part-time job that would give me some flexibility while I figured out what, whether or not I wanted to go back to graduate school. And in the middle of going through massage school, there was like a few sentences about infant massage. And I was already interested in specializing in pregnancy massage. And then the more research I did into infant and pediatric massage, the more that seemed like something else I also wanted to focus on. And I found I really enjoy working with families and helping, like, it's not just about, like, relieving pain, which a lot of massage is. In the case of pediatric massage, a lot of times it's about helping with growth. It's about helping the parents connect to the child or the caregivers, depending on the family situation. And, yeah, I think it was one of those things where initially I went into this thinking it was just going to be, like, a part-time job that I would do until I went to graduate school and did something else. And instead it became something about giving back to my community because, Families are sort of the fundamental unit of society. And because of terrible policy, lack of parental leave, lack of universal health care, lack of universal daycare, there really is a real struggle to raise a child in society that expects you to go back to work right after you give birth. That doesn't really provide space for you to be a parent. And so giving parents really simple tools to both heal themselves and also heal their kids is really powerful because you're empowering them. And so that's one job piece that I like that I do. And then the other piece I do with my autism advocacy, I originally went to um, a support group, the Square Peg support group, because I was looking for community. And as I started going more often, I got to know the organizers a bit better. And then I was invited to lead a spinoff group, the LGBTQ autistic support group through Square Pegs. And again, it was one of those things where I went in with one intention, but along the way, I discovered something else, something that I found to be really fulfilling. And I want to do more of that work. I want to do more work helping people better understand autistics as a community and also with individuals and also work with other autistics in 
helping some erase some of the stigma that you internalize growing up in a society that very much punishes behavior that is not within a very narrow range of norm, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a really strong connection in both of your areas of work is cultivating and using a level of communication that runs a lot deeper than just what is verbal. Like it's about communicating. Like I think it's really interesting what you said about community and connecting with community and empowering families and then doing advocacy work is empowerment work too. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about understanding communication on different levels um, and in nonverbal levels, especially when we're talking about something like consent, in particular with babies and like doing work on on infants. Yeah, that's something that I've come across a lot is, um, so when you look at other cultures, you'll find there is still very much a cultural tradition of massaging children. But we've lost that in the American European system along with midwifery, it was just sort of lost when there was a transition to more formalized medical establishment. And so what often happens is people don't understand why you would massage a baby. And they also don't understand that babies can give consent. Um, And that piece where we talk about what language is prioritized, we prioritize verbal and also English in this culture over everything else. And this is where, like, for example, consent education is often lacking because it just says, well, you need to wait for a no or, you know, no means no. But that's not enough. You also need to be looking at other forms of communication, like is a person trying to get away from you? Is a person having a lot of closed versus open body language, like little details like that. And I think that our over focus, over emphasis on verbal language allows us to ignore small warning signs that happen before an implosion or before a major falling out. And I think a lot of it has to do with how we're socialized, where we're not really socialized to be embodied. And if you're not within your body, it's much harder to really connect empathically with other people because you're all up in your head. Mm -hmm. You're all about the intellect and about preserving the self. But yeah, I mean, like babies, what I love about working with babies and early like toddler set with when it comes to massage is that they are so direct in their communication. I've found working with grown-ups, one thing I hear all the time as a massage therapist is, well, my back sort of hurts, but you'll tell me what's wrong. Mm. And I say, no, it's your body and we're going to learn the muscles and we're going to learn how to take care of it. But it's not just on me, the doctor to fix you. You are an active participant and trying to encourage people to step into their bodies and really become familiar and comfortable with their pain so that they can prevent and treat it, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think from from my point of view as a practitioner and doing meditation, there's a teachings around what's called the subtle body experience, which is learning to listen to the connection between your mind and your body so listening to the two very subtle things and it's really interesting like when you you're describing that sense of people deferring to authority rather than being comfortable and present and trusting their own experience and how we are often socialized not to trust our own experience especially if we belong to a marginalized community (laughs) Well, and that's that whole piece of, like, never force your kids to hug someone. Like, that's still somewhat debatable within certain parenting circles, along with is it appropriate to hit your kids. Um, so I feel like as a culture, we're at very steps of understanding consent as not just a thing you do so you don't commit sexual assault and, like, ruin your career. It's also some a way to live. It's a way of moving through the world. 
it's not just say like can i fill out this checklist before i had relations with this other person <laughs> i mean that's how a lot of people frame it though is like this serious legal conversation that's really unsexy and unfun but we have to do it or else we'll all get blamed like that's not what consent is it's a frame of mind it's how you move through the world it's about being considerate of other people mm. it's like think about how many pregnant individuals report people touching them without their consent think about how many non-white people talk about people touching their hair or their bodies think about how often you see people just reach out and grab a baby without waiting for the baby to invite them into their space like that's kind of that's also consent and yet so often consent is just framed as like a sexual thing um when it's not yeah uh, for you what are some things that you have developed like in your experience working professionally where you gain an understanding of how to read other signs of consent like what are some things that you can practically point to and say like here's something in my experience where i have learned how to notice when a baby, like specifically when a baby is consenting to the massage that I'm giving the child. So part of the infant massage and pediatric massage protocol in general is teaching um, open versus closed body language. So if you go to massage a baby and they're arching their back or they're batting their hand away or they start crying really heavily or they just, you know, they don't really want to look at you or they seem to be sort of glazed over in the eyes. Just that closed body language indicates this is not a good time. The baby's trying to say no. It's especially dangerous where if the baby goes from sort of arching their back and trying to bat your hand away and then they either go stiff or their eyes glaze over, that means they slid into disassociation, and that's really not good. <laughs> you really do not want a baby to be so stressed that they just go stiff, or they go limp, or they get glazed over eyes. Like, that's all really bad. That means the nervous system has completely lost the ability to cope and is overwhelmed. So it's really important when massaging babies that we're always checking in, that consent is not just given at the beginning of the massage, it's given throughout. I do something similar with adults where I'll also go over what body parts we're going to be massaging during that session. And then before I switch to each body part, I'll let them know verbally what I'm doing. Since a lot of adults also fall asleep during the massage. So <laughs> it's also good to have that transition piece as well so they don't get startled. And then how do you find that that influences your interactions with people when you're out in the world then and not in a professional context? Well, I mean, I'm much more sensitive to respecting people's space and also not putting myself at the center of like what's going on. Like I recognize that people have their own lives and that there are own reactions and that sometimes they might have a poor reaction to something I said or did, not necessarily because of me, but because this was just the 10th thing that I had to deal with that day or you have a previous trauma. So it's decentralizing myself. And also just, you know, I don't touch people without their consent. I don't, you know, touch people's hair. I don't make comments on people's clothes. I don't reach out and touch other people's children unless the children and the caregivers invite me to do so. Like just simple, thoughtful acts. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that actually about the decentralizing things. I, I think about how in the way that we're so hyper-connected right now, because we can get a hold of someone at any point in time, there's like a sense of entitlement to people's time. And it's like that same thing, right? It's just considering that actually it's not all about you. <laughs> uh, and, and learning to notice the, the social signals, whatever they might be, uh, whether they're verbal or not. 
So the other thing I really want to speak with you about is this, the autism advocacy work that you do, especially because neurodiversity is something that's getting a lot more discussion in the mainstream media, and it's kind of trendy to jump on autism awareness campaigns. But there's been a lot of misrepresentation. And I know that that birthed the phrase, nothing about us without us, which mm-hmm. has been used by a lot of communities, but came from the autistic community. Um, so it's something that comes up for a lot of marginalized groups, the importance of having accurate representation through full participation. And again, this is like speaking to that consent bit, <laughs> you're going to be representing people, you need consent that what you're representing is accurate, and not causing more harm. So could you just speak a little bit about the importance of that self representation of a group by a group? Um, one thing I find interesting is that people often talk, like you said, about autism awareness, but you hear much less often autism acceptance. And you also tend to hear, so I made a, actually a note about this earlier. Yeah, there's not a lot of discussion about um, autism acceptance and the idea that rather than doing autism as a disease or a disorder, it's just a different way of thinking. And that for the majority of autism's history as, you know, a label, it's always been described by people who are not autistic looking from the outside. Mm -hmm. And there has been some, not some, like there's been a hyper focus on our supposed deficits as opposed to also a mutual focus on our strengths. Mm -hmm. And there's a real emphasis on the idea of, well, you should be like this and because you're not, you're deficient. And that's not a very healthy way of thinking about different kinds of brains that exist. And there's also the fact that what we're realizing more and more is that development is more flexible than we originally realized with some of the early theorists. And that just because a child is not speaking by four doesn't mean they never will speak. And I think that there's a lot of, I mean, that's sort of like the tension between like, are we providing this child help with communicating? Or are we trying to make them more like us because they're not like us and that makes us uncomfortable? And that's a real blurry line sometimes, but that's the whole like social versus medical model of disability, which is like society puts up a lot of barriers if you don't learn and act a certain way intrinsically. For example, if you're a kinesthetic learner, you're going to struggle in school because a lot of schools are centered around non-kinesthetic ways of learning. And so many of these kids then leave school thinking that they're dumb, but they're not actually dumb. They just were forced to perform in a way that was not at all suited to their neurotype. And autism is the same thing. It's not just about our deficits. It's also about we have very, we have strengths. And also non-autistic people or autistic people have their own faults. It's sort of like the idea that there is some sort of standard of human that people can be molded to or expected to achieve (laughs) or the model at which we are all held and compared to. And yet humanity is so incredibly diverse that you could never find like what even saying I've been thinking about is like even saying neuroatypical gives me a question about like, well, what is it to be typical? You know, it's sort of like, what is it to be normal? If you're always like comparing it and centering it around an idea of like there is a centered idea of normalcy, then you can never approach the fullness of humanity because you're always comparing to a very limited set of characteristics or ideas of what a person should be rather than saying, oh, actually, 
people come in lots of different ways. Right. And there's definitely a very strong cultural component in the question of what does it mean to be a human and what does it mean to function within society? Mm -hmm. Uh, Sort of that classic, you know, autistics don't make eye contact. There are many cultures where eye contact is not necessarily favorable. So that would be much less of an issue in those cultures. Also, no one ever really stops to ask, like, why are these individuals not making eye contact? For me and for many other autistics, it's not that we're just totally oblivious. It's the fact that we're taking in too much information too fast, um, the intense world theory. And so for us, eye contact is actually very painful and very overwhelming. But if you go strictly from an outsider perspective, all you see is someone not being compliant. And that goes back to the whole decentralizing yourself, where if you're faced with supposed non-compliance, you can get aggressive and you can get angry, or you can get curious and ask, well, what's going on for them that's making them not want to make eye contact? Oh, that's, that's great. Yeah. And that's a piece I find a lot of people don't do. Like, I just recently read a book that was about an autistic child, um, and their father wrote it. And their father wrote that, and I'm paraphrasing here, but why does an autistic do what they do? It doesn't matter. He literally wrote that it doesn't matter why this individual might be reacting the way they are. Mm. And I just find that incredible that that's, you know, an acceptable opinion. Why is someone doing that? Well, I don't know and I don't care. Just make them comply with X, Y, or Z. It's like an erasure eraser of the validity of experience. It's like a white person saying, oh, I don't see color. <laughs> like, it's like, I'm not seeing you as a full human being. So I'm not seeing the reality of, or even wondering about you as a person and why you, what, why it is that you have the experience, like how you express yourself through the experiences that you've had. Um, just like, a, a, yeah, a complete dismissal of the personhood of someone. Um, I'd love if you could define the whole social model, medical model, because I think that's something that's really, really helpful for me. It was really helpful when I first heard those terms and had them explained. I was like, wow, that opened up a lot of understanding and a lot of curiosity for me. So, yeah, and like there's like a chart that I can also send if you want to post it along with the podcast. But basically, the social model states that disability is a result of how society is organized, that rather than looking solely at a person's impairment or difference, we can also look not only at their strengths, but how society puts barriers and how those barriers restrict life choices. The medical model, on the other hand, is largely focused with just what's wrong with the person. And it's not really interested in what the person needs. It's more about, like, how do we correct whatever this flaw is? So in this one interesting chart I found, it was like, so in the medical model, a disability is a deficiency or an abnormality. Well, in the social model, it's just a difference. It's not necessarily good nor bad, nor something that needs to be fixed. It just is a difference. And that being disabled in of itself is neutral. And that it comes, and that disability is not just a biologic, it's also about an interaction between the individual and the society. Mm-hmm. In the social model, disability is all in the individual. And then the remedy for disability is a cure or normalization of that individual. Whereas in the social model, the cure, which isn't a great phrasing, but the remedy for disability would be not only addressing any need the individual has, but also addressing the interaction between the individual and society. Like a really great example, there's a great photo, I don't know where to find it again, but so often when we go into buildings, the first thing we see is stairs. And then if there is a wheelchair ramp, it's tucked around to the side. 
And there was a really interesting photo of a pair, a set of stairs that was designed where the ramp was centralized and the stairs were around it. And just like little architectural things like that show just the little, even the, even the way our buildings are structured can either promote diversity or promote segregation and isolation. That really speaks to me about what you said earlier about with the advocacy that you do, where you're working with folks on addressing their internalized, like the way they've internalized stigma. Could you speak a little bit about that and how that relates? Like if you're moving through the world and you see that your needs are never accounted for, basically, how a person internalizes that and what kind of work is done around addressing that around like working with that stigma and bringing awareness to it and like doing what needs to be done as an individual to um to heal from that yeah so one thing i I hear fairly frequently is that uh, an autistic individual tell me that there's something wrong with their communication and that's why they're having trouble at work or that's why they're having trouble making friends or connecting to other people and i always gently point out that you know what Alleistic or non-autistic individuals also have communication difficulties. Having difficulties communicating and connecting is not necessarily a solely autistic trait. And that rather than viewing any sort of interaction that goes sideways as, oh, it's all my fault because I have a communication deficit, say like communication is a two-way street or three-way street, however many people are involved in this conversation. And that communication breakdowns can occur at any point and can be caused by a number of factors, but it can't be just boiled down to, it was just my fault because I have a communication deficit. And so sort of pushing back against that and saying like, how might things might have failed on their end? Were they not specific enough? Were they just having a bad day and had a bit of an overreaction? So sort of asking people to step away from that DSM model and moving toward a like communication is complex and there's a lot of places where things can break down. And then also encouraging people to read the works of other autism advocates. I found that to be both really helpful for myself and for others. Because when you read other autistic advocates, it not only gives you words for your own experience, but it also provides you more tools to push back against the idea that I'm the one that's disabled, I'm the deficient one, therefore if anything goes wrong, it's my fault. Which is very easy to fall into when you've been punished your whole life for arbitrary things it sometimes feels like. What do you think are the some of the most deeply ingrained stigmas that you find folks are working with to, to uproot? Um, well, a big one is the idea that all autistics are cold, robotic, unempathetic, totally disinterested in learning social cues or norms, and that we're all really good at solving problems or puzzles. <laughs> like, we're invariably like computer scientists or, you know, the um, scientists who solve crimes and we're completely cold and emotionless and we have no relationships and we're baffled by all relationships. This very flat, negative stereotype that's become, as uh, this one automatic we called it, a literary trope mm. for TVs and movies and books written by people who are not autistic, who are trying to describe autism from the outside. And I'm sure there might be some autistics who fit, for example, the personality of Sherlock Holmes or um, Sheldon from Big Bang, but they're certainly not the majority, and they're certainly not all of us. 
And especially that empathy piece, that assumption that all autistics lack both empathy and the desire to be social is especially pernicious. Mm-hmm. Because it not only is false, but it also doesn't get people properly diagnosed and properly proper help. Right. Yeah, I think that's an, another piece that I hear a lot. I've always actually found that quite ironic that people will say, well, you know, it's just really hard. I don't really understand or, or I struggle to to connect with someone who's autistic in my life because, you know, they lack empathy. And I'm like, well, it's not very empathetic of you. Right. <laughs> Um, so what is the sort of the support or guidance that you provide to the people that you do advocacy work with uh, around how to navigate that and like how to name the truth of their experience? And it's so, it, I mean, basically what it is, is it's about being seen fully as a human being and it can be kind of exhausting to actually say, could you please see me? So what are sort of the, 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 the tools that you use or the supports that you provide? Well, I mean, a big part of it is collecting and disseminating resources and encouraging people to read more stories from different perspectives and from different ways of thinking and talking about disability. Also encouraging like sharing personal stories and encouraging connection through that. Help people have sort of an example they can go off of, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then, like, just participating in, like, intergroup dialogues, which is all about bringing together facilitated conversations between different communities. So we could probably do, like, an entire episode just on the subject of sexuality and disability. And I think that this is another area that is so important to talk about and name because a big part of the medical model is the erasure of of the complexity and fullness of a human being and just focusing on a diagnosis and completely ignoring the fact that this person might, you know, this person will have a sexual orientation and a gender orientation and they'll have a very varied identity beyond just one bit that the medical community has decided to diagnose them with, as it were. So could you talk a little bit about like the unlearning that, goes along because I think this really speaks to that stigma um, and and the idea of you know relationships being something really hard or something that if you're autistic you're completely incapable of so what's the sort of the unlearning that you've done for yourself around that and then the way that you take that out in the work that you do so just for a little bit of context um, I was raised in Houston Texas I went to a Baptist school and I had two rounds of abstinence-only education. Wow. Um, yeah, I had some biological-based, like, books at home, like, you know, basic, like, little puberty books and all that. But it was very much about biology. And it, I don't think any of them talked about LGBTQ or anything like that. And so my education was sort of both very scientifically accurate, but also very shaming. And what I found is that due to the fact that as a culture, we don't really have a healthy relationship with the body or with pleasure. We're very suspicious of pleasure and we very much overemphasize work. And we also have a complete lack of sexual or romantic education. And one thing I found was that most people don't know how to have healthy relationships. Most people are really unprepared for how to have a functional, healthy relationship. And I think that's why you know, Emily, I always recommend to people like um, Emily Migowski's book, Come As You Are, 
mm-hmm. was really helpful for me. And actually deprogramming some of the stuff I would learned about my body. Just like, for example, things like sex is an incentive motivation system. And breaking it down into a concrete part was really helpful. Um, I don't like the way the book is often marketed as like, you know, a guide for women or what have you. It's meant for everyone with this body. Anyone who has a functioning body and is a humanoid will learn something from this book. And also reading like uh, Esther Pearl's books about infidelity and affairs was also really interesting because like most people, I grew up thinking that affairs were just something that happened because people were bored or like there wasn't enough lingerie or whatever. But in actuality, <laughs> it's much more complex than that. Mm-hmm. And then also doing a lot of deprogramming around gender. That was something where my parents were on the one hand very egalitarian and very open, like they didn't dress me up in high heels when I was a toddler, like they really allowed us to have freedom of movement, but puberty was kind of where everyone just didn't know what to do. No one was even remotely prepared for how to help me through puberty, and what happened was that my body was moving ahead of my a bit my social-emotional development, mm-hmm. so while all my peers started dating and being interested in boys and girls and what have you, I was not there yet. This is actually a common phenomenon, especially if you have a uterus and you didn't get properly diagnosed as autistic. So you were just thought you were anxious or ADD or something else. So my sensory issues weren't being addressed. And my social, my autism was sort of being addressed through language therapy, but I wasn't given appropriate socialization tools because then, like now, most practitioners are not prepared to help an autistic individual through the uh, through sexual and romantic education for puberty. Like, a lot of them are just not prepared for how to even remotely grapple with that. Their solution was ultimately to send me to an all-girls school because they were like, well, let's just stick them there and they'll just be ready for college when they're done. <laughs> like, they didn't know what to do, and I don't blame them. So doing a lot of, like, Cordelia Fine's books on gender and then also stuff like Captain Awkward, Scarlet Teen... Um, Autostraddle, those all provided really helpful resources to help me deprogram some of the myths I learned growing up. But it was still like, I'm very research oriented. I like doing research. I started researching gender when I was like in the sixth grade because I didn't understand why I was always being yelled at for not doing my gender right. But not everyone has the time or resources or the inclination to do that kind of research. And I feel like in order to have a healthy functional relationship, whether or not you're autistic or not, is very much dependent on how research inclined you are. And what's available too. Like the fact you just said that you didn't really understand why you're being yelled at so much for not doing your gender right. Mm -hmm. It it took me probably until uh, I guess my mid twenties to realize that when I was bullied in junior high, I was bullied because I wasn't being the right kind of girl. I didn't understand that that's what was even going on. And I I think what it speaks to in things that I've read about autistic people who are saying like, oh, this was how I was taught dating really speaks to the larger social problem we have around having really binary structure of gender and all the biological myths that we're up against. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Well, also like there's a primacy on like the relationship escalator and the assumption that everyone is going to be monogamous is heterosexual and interested in going on this escalator from dating to marriage. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, that model doesn't work. And I find that a lot of suffering happens when people are trying to make themselves 
fit that model and it just doesn't work. And recognizing that that model might work sometimes during your life, but maybe not during other parts of your life. But as part of like our cultural idea of the self is like yourself is supposed to be fixed. But in actuality, yourself is actually there's multiple aspects to yourself and you change as you grow up. Your priorities change, your, 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 your time, everything changes. And we don't really have any way to nuancely teach anyone about how to weather those changes in ourselves and our partners and our friends. Like, yeah, we just have a lot of suffering born from trying to make ourselves fit this one thing for all of eternity. Yeah, about being able to be comfortable with shifting identities and and accepting and understanding of the fact that there's nothing wrong with changing how you identify as you grow. (laughs) Right. And the weird thing is we accept that, though, in other things. Like, we accept the fact that when we're four, we're going to be really into dinosaurs, but not so much when we're ten. And yet, when it comes to our sexuality, when it comes to what relationships we want to have, we assume that it's all going to be this one very specific thing for our entire life, which is odd. (laughs) (laughs) It's odd. And then I think as well, you're talking about any community who is so regularly defined really singularly uh like i worked with youth in care when i first graduated from high school and what i learned from listening to their experiences and and listening to them talk about the stigma that they experienced was that so much of the time the fact that they were from care was the only aspect of their experience that anyone would talk to them about or give them support with. Um, I even, like, I worked with a kid who was told in no uncertain terms by a group home staff member that he should just not be gay until he's 18. <laughs> just turn that off and then turn it back on once you're a legal adult. Yeah, it's like, no, just being in care is hard enough kind of thing. And which really, again, it's that whole decentralizing thing. It's about... It says a whole lot more about that group home staff member or about a member of a medical community or whatever who is so unwilling to address the fullness of another human being who doesn't have the resources or is choosing not to develop the capacity to think about somebody beyond just a really singular definition or label. So I guess like before I get into the last question, because we've got some more time, Like, if you want to just talk a bit about some of the common myths about autism and what things you are doing and what things you see people doing to combat those myths. So I usually roughly call it about like seven common myths. So one of them we sort of touched on already, which is the myth that we have no empathy, which is not true. And then so another common myth is the idea that all autistics don't like to be touched. And while it's certainly true that many autistics have sensory issues, each person has their own suite of sensory issues, and you can't really presume whether or not someone wants to be touched solely based on whether they're autistic or autistic. In that, I feel like the no touching goes along with the zero empathy and the idea that autistics are cold. It's sort of that flattening out, assuming that everyone has the exact same preferences, likes, and dislikes, and that's not true. Autistics are as varied as anyone else. There is still this idea that autism is a boy disorder. It's a man, it's a guy disorder, that invariably when you see autistics, they're usually presented as white cis men, Um, which is 
we still don't really have an accurate number because one autism like everything else is mediated by the culture if the culture says that you're a problem then you're going to get a different percentage of people who are labeled as this thing than if your by and large your behavior is not labeled a problem i don't know if that made sense but yeah i feel like our culture really rewards certain kinds of like very extroverted, very verbal, but also able to sit down for long periods of time and conform to authority. So what we do know now is that there is definitely a bias in who does and does not get a diagnosis. And this is true for all mental health, where if you have a white child and they're acting out and their parents have money and can afford to get them a diagnosis and medication and all of that, that's going to be different than if, say, you're a non-white child and your parents do not have a lot of money, then you're just labeled a problem. Then you're just a disciplinary issue. And it's that question of, like, who gets diagnosis and help and who just gets disciplined and suspended. And there's definitely a racial and economic aspect to that question. And we now realize that there's a lot more uh, people with uteruses, you know, women and other individuals, because the other piece is a lot of autistics are um, gender nonconforming. So we have to be very careful with our language. Um, that's why I often say, like, if you have a uterus, you probably were not diagnosed with autism. You're probably diagnosed with anxiety or ADD because that those are common misdiagnoses. People with uteruses more often find themselves diagnosed later in life, if at all. And research is now showing that if you're socialized as female, you're more likely to do camouflaging. And there's a bunch camouflaging. of... Camouflaging. Yeah, like mimicking social behavior, but not actually understanding. So for example, you might see this little girl and she's on the playground and she's moving between groups of peers. And so it looks like she's being social, but in actuality, she's just kind of pinballing between the different groups and trying to mimicate their behaviors, but then sort of then moving between groups and doing that. Right. Uh, there's not actually a deep connection happening. It just appears on the surface that they have friends. And so oftentimes in order to get diagnosed young, they often have to show more severe traits. Mm-hmm. And there's also like interesting little differences that I suspect are related to the socialization process, such as like girls or individuals with uteruses tend to show less severe language delays. They tend to show better social skills. They tend to be less severely impaired. But I would hesitate to say that that was a definite biological sex aspect because the differences we see in male and female autistics or, you know, people with without uteruses is uh, very much a reflection of how we gender people. We now we know that people will speak to babies designated as girls more. We treat them gently. We treat them more gently. Whereas with babies designated as boys, they are more they do more rough and tumble play. And this is stuff like where they take a baby, dress it in a neutral outfit, and then just tell people, oh, it's a boy or it's a girl. And it can be the same baby, and it'll be treated completely differently, mm-hmm. whether it was a boy or a girl. So, yeah, that very common myth that autism is a male disorder, specifically a cis white male disorder, is wrong. Um, autism is present across all cultures. It can be present across all races. And... Many individuals are, um, who are autistic are not cis. Many of them are trans or gender nonconforming. And there is actually a higher percentage when you look at the autistic population who are trans or gender nonconforming than in the non-autistic population. 
That's really interesting. Um, I did want to actually ask one other thing. There's this something that I, I made a note of after watching a video by a, somebody that I used to know when I lived in the UK, where he, uh, he was talking about the social model and the medical model. And the well-meaningness of people who don't belong to a group trying to create some sort of sense of, of I don't know, of being really woke to the group, <laughs> I guess. Right. Um, so w could you speak a little bit to the use of saying people with autism, where they're like people first, versus just saying an autistic person? Well, I mean, I think that... It's, I found a useful tool for that is to actually change, like replace the word autism with literally anything else. So instead of saying um, blank individual, you say person with blank. When you do that, you put anything else in there other than autistic and it just sounds horrific. <laughs> person with woman. Yes. Right. <laughs> person with black. <laughs> yeah, it just sounds like really awkward and weird. So why then do we only do it with autism? Yeah, no, that's that's great. Thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate. I mean, it, like, it's even like my favorite is like you know instead of saying a queer individual, you say you know person with queer, which sort of works, but not really. No. Um, <laughs> no, and well, I think it sort of works in a really tongue-in-cheek way. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Not. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So yeah, to finish, I just invite you to share any resources or supports for for any folks who are like engaged in similar kinds of work as, as what you were doing or um who yeah some autistic people who are like uh trying to like connect with advocacy resources and community so like anything extra that you want to say and leave as an offering for listeners i would definitely recommend books like you know emily nagowski's come as you are the um, Esther Pearl books, Mating in Captivity, looking up the Four Horsemen of John, uh, by John with uh, John Gottman. The mm -hmm. way he can actually predict is who will and will not get divorced is a little bit scary. Um, but it also really shows like it's those Four Horsemen of Apocalypse are not just about in my mind. It's for all relationships because as soon as you start stonewalling or as soon as you start treating someone with disdain you're already not empathically connected you're already having a communication breakdown regardless of what kind of relationship you have with that person and then i would also recommend like looking on meetup and seeing if there's any autism meetup groups that are specifically led by and for autistic individuals like for example i'm going to go in a few days to a conference that's you know led by and organized by autistic advocates so see if there are things like that in your city as well like try to tap into if there is one an autistic community and if you can't find one in your actual city or your residence, then there's always a thriving online communities. And that's part of the list the links I'll send you can provide further resources to finding these online communities. But yeah, just, you know, autistic people have strengths and weaknesses. Aliastic people have strengths and weaknesses. And we just really need to start seeing people instead of just seeing like an annoyance that's getting in your way of whatever you're trying to want, trying to like, get or achieve really seeing each other as people instead of just discrete parts or what have you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. To learn more about Jack's work or to contact them about advocacy support or pediatric massage, you can visit jackspediatricmassagepractice.com. That's jacks, J-A-X, pediatricmassagepractice.com. 
Jack also has a whole bunch of great resources and links on their website, and I am including some of those links where I am posting this episode. So if you're finding this on Facebook or on LinkedIn or something like that, check out the blurb that I've written with it because there will be some great resources there too. To learn more about my work in the world, visit CaitlinSCHatch.com. Along with more episodes of Everything is Workable, you can find my blog, books, and art, and learn more about my chaplaincy training. You can also become a patron or leave a tip to help support the things that I do. This episode of Everything is Workable was made possible through the patronage of Gretchen Wagner, Julian and Shannon Hatch, Winita Budgen, Margaret Prescott, Val Delane, and Perry Pugh, among others. The original theme song for this podcast was created by award-winning singer-songwriter Tajai Moore of More Music.